Book One, Chapter Three of Amelia, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Amelia by Henry Fielding. Containing the inside of a prison. Mr. Booth, for we shall not trouble you with the rest was no sooner arrived in the prison than a number of persons gathered round him all demanding garnish to which mr booth was not making a ready answer as indeed he did not understand the word some were going to lay hold of him when a person of apparent dignity came up and insisted that no one should affront the gentleman this person then who was no less than the master or keeper of the prison turning towards mr booth acquainted him that it was the custom of the place for every prisoner upon his first arrival there to give something to the former prisoners to make them drink this he said was what they call garnish and concluded with advising his new customer to draw his purse upon the present occasion mr booth answered that he would very readily comply with this laudable custom was it in his power but that in reality he had not a shilling in his pocket and what was worse he had not a shilling in the world oh ho if that be the case cries the keeper it is another matter and i have nothing to say upon which he immediately departed and left poor booth to the mercy of his companions who without loss of time applied themselves to uncasing as they termed it and with such dexterity that his coat was not only stripped off but out of sight in a minute mr booth was too weak to resist and too wise to complain of this usage as soon therefore as he was at liberty and declared free of the place he summoned his philosophy of which he had no inconsiderable share to his assistance and resolved to make himself as easy as possible under his present circumstances could his own thoughts indeed have suffered him a moment to forget where he was the dispositions of the other prisoners might have induced him to believe that he had been in a happier place for much the greater part of his fellow-sufferers instead of wailing and repining at their condition were laughing singing and diverting themselves with various kinds of sports and gambols the first person who accosted him was called blear-eyed mole a woman of no very comely appearance her eye for she had but one when she derived her nickname was such as that nickname bespoke besides which it had two remarkable qualities for first as if nature had been careful to provide for her own defect it constantly looked towards her blind side and secondly the ball consisted almost entirely of white or rather yellow with a little grey spot in the corner so small that it was scarce discernible no she had none for venus envious perhaps at her former charms had carried off the grisly part and some earthly damsel perhaps from the same envy had levelled the bone with the rest of her face indeed it was far beneath the bones of her cheek which rose proportionally higher than is usual about half a dozen ebony teeth fortified that large and long canal which nature had cut from ear to ear at the bottom of which was a chin preposterously short nature having turned up the bottom instead of suffering it to grow to its due length her body was well adapted to her face she measured full as much round the middle as from head to foot for besides the extreme breadth of her back her vast breasts had long forsaken their native home and had settled themselves a little below the girdle i wish certain actresses on the stage when they are to perform characters of no amiable cast 
would study to dress themselves with the propriety with which blear-eyed mole was now arrayed for the sake of our squeamish reader we shall not descend to particulars let it suffice to say nothing more ragged or more dirty was ever emptied out of the roundhouse at st giles we have taken the more pains to describe this person for two remarkable reasons the one is that this unlovely creature was taken in the fact with a very pretty young fellow the other which is more productive of moral lesson is that however wretched her fortune may appear to the reader she was one of the merriest persons in the whole prison blear-eyed mole then came up to mr booth with a smile or rather grin on her countenance and asked him for a dram of gin and when booth assured her that he had not a penny of money she replied damn your eyes i thought by your look you had been a clever fellow and upon the snaffling lay footnote a cant term for robbery on the highway at least but damned your body and eyes i find you are some sneaking budge footnote another cant term for pilfering rascal she then launched forth a volley of dreadful oaths interlarded with some language not proper to be repeated here and was going to lay hold on poor booth when a tall prisoner who had been very earnestly eyeing booth for some time came up and taking her by the shoulder flung her off at some distance cursing her for a bee and bidding her let the gentleman alone this person was not himself of the most inviting aspect he was long-visaged and pale with a red beard of above a fortnight's growth he was attired in a brownish-black coat which would have showed more holes than it did had not the linen which appeared through it been entirely of the same colour with the cloth this gentleman whose name was robinson addressed himself very civilly to mr booth and told him he was sorry to see one of his appearance in that place for as to your being without your coat sir says he i can easily account for that and indeed dress is the least part which distinguishes a gentleman at which words he cast a significant look on his own coat as if he desired they should be applied to himself he then proceeded in the following manner i perceive sir you are but just arrived in this dismal place which is indeed rendered more detestable by the wretches who inhabit it than by any other circumstance but even these a wise man will soon bring himself to bear with indifference for what is is and what must be must be the knowledge of this which simple as it appears is in truth the height of all philosophy renders a wise man superior in every evil which can befall him i hope sir no very dreadful accident is the cause of your coming hither but whatever it was you may be assured it could not be otherwise for all things happen by the inevitable fatality and a man can no more resist the impulse of fate than a wheelbarrow can the force of its driver besides the obligation which mr robinson had conferred on mr booth in delivering him from the insults of blear-eyed mole there was something in the manner of robinson which notwithstanding the meanness of his dress seemed to distinguish him from the crowd of wretches who swarmed in those regions and above all the sentiments which he had just declared very nearly coincided with those of mr booth this gentleman was what they call a free thinker that is to say a deist or perhaps an atheist for though he did not absolutely deny the existence of a god yet he entirely denied his providence a doctrine which if it is not downright atheism hath a direct tendency towards it and as dr clark observes may soon be driven into it and as to mr booth 
though he was in his heart an extreme well-wisher to religion for he was an honest man yet his notions of it were very slight and uncertain to say the truth he was in the wavering condition so finely described by claudian iabe facta cadillat religio causaeque viam non sponte sequebar alterius vacua quae curere seminar motu affirmat magnumque novas fer inane figures fortuna non arte regi quae numina sensu ambiguo vel nulla futat vel nesia nostri this way of thinking or rather of doubting he had contracted from the same reasons which claudian assigns and which had induced brutus in his latter days to doubt the existence of that virtue which he had all his life cultivated in short poor booth imagined that a larger share of misfortunes had fallen to his lot than he had merited and this led him who though a good classical scholar was not deeply learned in religious matters into a disadvantageous opinion of providence a dangerous way of reasoning in which our conclusions are not only too hasty from an imperfect view of things but we are likewise liable to much error from partiality to ourselves viewing our virtues and vices as though a perspective in which we turn the glass always to our own advantage so as to diminish the one and as greatly to magnify the other from the above reasons it can be no wonder that mr booth did not decline the acquaintance of this person in a place which could not promise to afford him any better he answered him therefore with great courtesy as indeed he was of a very good and gentle disposition and after expressing a civil surprise at meeting him there declared himself to be of the same opinion with regard to the necessity of human actions adding however that he did not believe men were under any blind impulse or direction of fate but that every man acted merely from the force of that passion which was uppermost in his mind and could do no otherwise a discourse now ensued between the two gentlemen on the necessity arising from the impulse of fate and the necessity arising from the impulse of passion which as it will make a pretty pamphlet of itself we shall reserve for some future opportunity when this was ended they set forward to survey the jail and the prisoners and the several cases of whom mr robinson who had been some time under confinement undertook to make mr booth acquainted end of book one chapter three